Hello and welcome to the Potential Psychology Podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Jackson, and it's my mission to share the science of human behaviour in a practical, fun and inspiring way. In each podcast episode, I interview an expert from the fields of psychology, well-being, leadership, parenting or high performance. I pick their brain to uncover what they know about living well, what tips do they have for you and I, and I quiz them about how they apply their expertise in their own life. Join me as we discover simple, science-backed ways to live, learn, flourish, and fulfil your potential. Hello, and welcome to 2020 and the summer series of the Potential Psychology Podcast. Over the next few weeks, while the team and I have a short break and then get started on preparations for our new upcoming and exciting guest interviews and episodes, we're revisiting some past episodes that feel a little pertinent at this time of year. And as it is the 1st of January 2020 as we go to air, a brand new year and a brand new decade, you might be thinking about fresh starts, new goals, new habits, maybe big plans or small plans, maybe slowing down, maybe travel, professional goals, relocating, study, whatever it is that you are working towards with this shiny new year ahead, you'll get further faster and feel more calm and in control if you approach your goals and projects with even the tiniest amount of focus and awareness. So let's not leave these goals to chance with this brand new year. Let's take a few simple steps to increase your likelihood of success. And if you're in, on, in, if you're on, our mailing list, you will have received my 2020 Personal Projects Planner by now, which guides you through the process of establishing your personal projects, which in psychological terms are any meaningful goals, big or small, that you work towards over a day or a week or a month or a year or maybe a lifetime. And unlike New Year's resolutions, which tend to be pursuits that we feel we should engage in or habits we feel we should change for some reason that's rarely linked to who we are and therefore are destined to fail within a matter of weeks, personal projects are pursuits that we want to engage in either because they're core to who we are or they get us closer to who we want to be. So our personal projects don't suck energy like New Year's resolutions, they give us energy and striving towards them contributes to our well-being. So if you don't have your personal projects planner and you'd like a copy, pop over to potential.com.au forward slash subscribe and I'll send one your way or you'll find the links in my Instagram and Facebook feeds. So if you're not there already, find us just by searching Potential Psychology. And within the personal projects planner, you'll find some tips on motivation and that's what we're going to revisit today in today's episode. This is my first ever solo episode of the show from season six entitled Why Everything You Know About Motivation Is Wrong and How to Create True Effortless Motivation. So let's go. So the definition of motivation, because that's always a good place to start, is just the desire to do something or maybe the drive to do something, but certainly the definition that I like to use is the desire to do something. It's as simple as that. But here's the thing. It's not simple, is it? It's complicated. Anybody who's ever tried to motivate themselves to develop a new habit or to start an exercise regime or change their diet 
or even learn a new skill knows that motivation is not a simple thing. Far more complex, probably from a psychological point of view, that most of us anticipate or even really want. And here's a few of the beliefs about motivation that most of us hold that are not necessarily helpful. Firstly, that we somehow need to find the motivation that we need to do difficult things like go to the gym or clean the house or do our taxes or get started on something challenging or difficult or even something inspiring sometimes we can still procrastinate over things that we really want to do hence that you know complexity thing and it's like we think that somehow our motivation's hiding down the back of the couch or it's somewhere and if we could just find it we'd be up and running that it was that straightforward but that's not how motivation works Secondly, a second belief about motivation that is not necessarily helpful is this idea that we're either motivated or we're not, that it's an either or situation or like an on off, like we can flick a switch and that there's no room for degrees of motivation or acknowledgement that our motivation ebbs and flows at times or that it can be generated from multiple different sources. Motivation is really a very fluid thing. It's not static, but it's not how we tend to think about it. We think we either have it or we don't. The third belief about motivation is that lacking motivation is bad and being motivated is good. We attach a value to it. Motivation is good. Not being motivated is bad. And that's not right either. Motivation just is. It's not necessarily a good or bad thing. Fourth belief, there's five altogether. Our fourth is that to motivate other people or indeed ourselves, we need punishment and rewards. We need bonuses for grown ups or star charts for kids or suspension for grown ups and withdrawal of screen privileges for kids. And that doesn't work either, or not for long. And I'm going to talk quite a bit about that in a moment. And the fifth and final one is even the idea that we can motivate other people is an unhelpful belief. We can't actually motivate somebody else. And that's what I'm going to talk about too. So there's plenty that we know, or we think we know about motivation, but it turns out it's mostly wrong. It's actually outdated and it's rather unhelpful. Unhelpful for not only our motivation itself, but also for our well-being and certainly for helping to motivate other people, whether that's people you might manage at work in a team or as a coach or as a leader, or maybe the people, kids and grown-ups, who share a home with you. So where did these myths come from? Why do we believe this less than helpful stuff about motivation and what should we believe? What in fact do we know about motivation that is helpful and informative? Well, this comes partly from our historical understanding of motivation. So psychologists didn't really start studying motivation in any systematic ways until about the 1950s, which is really not that long ago. And prior to that, there were management theorists like Frederick Taylor, who observed behaviour in workplaces and developed theories about motivation based on what he saw, what he observed. So there's a thing, phenomenon, a theory called Taylorism or scientific management as it's also known and that was an approach to people management that essentially considered people as inputs into a system like one of the components used to make something so you had all of your widgets the things that went into the system and people were put one of those components 
And Taylor's idea was that if you paid the people as components in the system X amount, you could expect a certain level of output from them which is pretty basic, simplistic way of looking at it, really, but it was quite revolutionary at the time. And then in the 1920s, Elton Mayo examined and came up with a thing that's now known as the Hawthorne effect. And Mayo noted that people's behaviour changed at work when they were being observed and that productivity actually increased when employees were being watched. So his belief and this Hawthorne effect basically states that you've got to keep an eye on people to keep them focused on on the job, that motivation comes from an external source which was being watched by someone and therefore we boosted our productivity when we were under observation. So these are pretty simplistic ways of thinking about motivation but it's where we started in terms of our understanding of it. And then in the 1950s, and this was sort of happening in parallel, people like B.F. Skinner, who's a famous, what's called behaviourist, so this was a, a understanding about psychology or a philosophy around human behaviour at the time, around the 1950s, and he ran experiments and developed what he called the law of effect, which basically said that people change their behaviour in response to external factors or anticipation of external factors. So if we anticipate being rewarded, for example, we'll do whatever we think we need to do to get that reward. And this is known as positive reinforcement. And you've no doubt heard about that at some stage. So you do the thing, you get the reward. And that's what our motivation comes from. You know, we're motivated to do the thing because someone's going to reward it for us. Or we do the thing to stop something unpleasant from happening. Okay, so nagging is a great example here, one we can probably all relate to. If you're being nagged to do something, you'll do it sometimes just to make the nagging stop. So we're actually trying to remove an annoying circumstance and that drives the behaviour and that's called negative reinforcement. And then there's another type of driver of behaviour that's external and it's punishment. So if we don't do the thing, we're punished for it. Yeah. So if you don't do what your mum asks, then she shouts at you or removes your screen privileges, for example. So it's a form of punishment. So this drives behaviour because we do the thing to avoid the punishment. And this can all be bundled up under the label operant conditioning, which is an early understanding of how we learn and how behaviour changes. And this is the kind of stuff you learn all about in first year psychology. If you've done that, you probably remember this stuff. But these ideas about external forces to motivate, so rewards and punishments, have really stuck. Yeah, so our understanding of motivation within psychology and other allied fields has grown, but these ideas have stuck and to some extent they work. Yeah, so if the behaviour that we're looking for is really simple, then this simple approach works. We use treats to train dogs, for example. It's a form of positive reinforcement. They've done what we asked, you get the treat. If you want to stop your toddler from putting his hand on the hot stove and you shout at him, he gets a fright and associates that with putting his hand on the stove, hopefully learning not to do it. It's the same premise behind poker machines. If you keep putting your money in and pressing the button, you might get rewarded and that encourages you to keep going. But of course, you don't always keep going, do you? And this is where things start to fall over. At some point, you might say, nah, that's enough for me, I'm out. 
Or maybe you know better than to play the pokies at all. The reward system doesn't work for you. Or there's people obviously who do keep going and keep putting my money in despite knowing at a cognitive level that it's not doing them any good and it isn't necessarily going to give them the reward they're looking for, except that they get those little drips of a reward that does keep motivating the behaviour. So in simple ways, it works. But human beings aren't simple. Human beings are complicated. And we do things for all kinds of complicated and intertwined reasons. And sometimes we're not even conscious of those reasons. We do things for reasons that we couldn't even necessarily explain. Our motivation is kind of deep-seated. But it's definitely more complex than simple punishment and reward or positive and negative reinforcement. And yet this idea of motivating ourselves or others through punishment and reward and trying to control our behaviour or the behaviour of others through this positive and negative reinforcement has really stuck. But in the mid-1970s, a couple of young researchers, Edward Desai and Richard Ryan at the New York-based University of Rochester, started to wonder about this. And they noticed that people don't always have to be prodded or conjoled into action using rewards and punishment or carrots and sticks. Some of us do the craziest things that defy all logic. They don't make sense. And yet we're still really highly motivated to do them. We risk our lives climbing icy mountains where there's very little oxygen, or we surf giant waves where risk to life and limb is quite significant, or we donate hours and hours of our time to charities or to volunteer work when there's no obvious monetary reward or there is no monetary reward or there may not be any other obvious reward. Or we have children. You know, that doesn't make logical sense, does it? What's the motivation for doing that? It's very expensive and time-consuming and you get very little sleep for a long time and you give up a whole lot of your life for it. It, in fact, can feel a little bit like punishment on certain days. And yet we do it voluntarily. We're motivated to do it. So Desai and Ryan got interested in this and they started to investigate it, asking the question, are there other forms of motivation? And if so, where do they come from? And they came at this question from a very different philosophical point of view. They were interested in what energised people and inspired them to do things. What we've really come to know, I suppose, is intrinsic motivation. And they theorised that given the right conditions, people really want to learn and grow. They really want to try new things and test themselves and push themselves and explore and experience. So they were really interested in what they call high quality motivation. When people can be wholeheartedly engaged in something and can have both their best experience and their best performance, because we know that they're the conditions that help us to thrive and flourish. So they set about doing a whole heap of experiments and research into different types of motivation beyond this idea of reward and punishment that was very much the understanding of motivation at the time. And by the mid-1980s, they developed something that they called self-determination theory. And what's fascinating is that self-determination theory is now the world's most cited theory of motivation within psychology and related fields. It's the undisputed king of our understanding of motivation and how it works. And it has been for the better part of 30 years, but it really hasn't made it out there into the mainstream in any significant way. 
it really hasn't made headway in how we consider motivation and how we understand motivation at work or often in schools and certainly not in parenting. We're still stuck with the rewards and the punishments. Now, why is this? You know, if psychologists have known this stuff about self-determination, and I'm going to explain exactly what that is shortly, you know, why haven't we incorporated that into our everyday understanding? Why don't we use that in terms of how we go about trying to motivate others? And one of the reasons I think is that it is more complex. Yeah. So our human brains like simple and straightforward, and we tend to choose the simple option over the more complex option. You know, our brains are essentially lazy. We can get our heads around carrots and sticks and rewards and punishment. It's straightforward. And so we kind of stick with that. Pardon the pun. But also when we try the carrot or stick approach, it tends to work, at least at first, or it looks like it's working. And it does work if you want low quality motivation. So when we nag our kids to do their homework, which is a form of negative reinforcement, or we threaten to take away screen time privileges, so that's a punishment, or we pay them to help around the house, which is a positive reinforcement, they do tend to do what we want, initially at least. But the effect wears off. And to have the same effect, we have to shout more or take away more privileges or pay them more and it becomes this kind of escalating situation. And the same thing happens with a team that you're managing at work, for example. If you're using control, and that's what reward and punishment is, it's a type of control to get people to respond to you, then every time you're not there or you're not wielding the big stick, they're likely to revert to whatever their previous behaviour might have been. And that's possibly less than what you're looking for. And this does happen because when we use our carrots and sticks, our punishments or rewards, these simple approaches to motivation, what we're trying to do is control someone's behaviour. It's an external force pushing on us to make us do something. We're not really motivating them, we're controlling them. And that's quite different. And it definitely comes with fallout beyond the fact that we've got to keep escalating the rewards and the punishments to keep it going. So for starters, when we use this control approach to managing behaviour, to get the behaviour that we're looking for, whether it's someone else's or our own, it does damage to our relationships. So when we shout at our kids or remove privileges or punish them, that's when you get the eye rolling and the resentment or they do what you want just to shut you up, to stop you nagging, or they do begin to just flat out ignore you. So it ceases to be an interaction based on trust and respect, and that's not good for a positive relationship, and it's certainly not what we'd call positive motivation. And the same thing occurs when we're managing people in a workplace. So a workplace culture that's based on control can really quickly become quite an unpleasant place to be. It creates an environment in which rather than go the extra mile, people tend to do the bare minimum. And that's the other area of fallout from taking this control or punishment or reward approach to motivation. The fallout is our psychological flourishing. So if you think about motivating yourself for a moment, if you set yourself a goal to exercise more and you use reward and punishment as your motivator, which many of us do, you'll generally find that your external rewards work for a little while until you kind of don't care anymore. So it's the same with kids. You know, the benefits of that coffee after your gym session 
or buying yourself a treat no longer outweigh the benefit of staying tucked up in your warm bed or even using the time to get out to the office early and get on top of your email. There's all these competing demands that we grapple with. And if the benefit of that external reward, the treat you were going to buy yourself, whatever it might be, doesn't outweigh one of these other competing demands, you don't get the benefit, you don't get the motivation, you don't change the behaviour or create the new habit. And if you use punishment, so if you beat yourself up verbally, not usually physically, but we all beat ourselves up verbally. If you beat yourself up after you don't stick to your gym plan, for example, you tell yourself that you're hopeless, you're useless, what's the point, you can never stick to anything, all of those little phrases that we use somewhere in our internal conversations with ourselves, the new behaviour also stops. You just, you don't go to the gym. And now you're also feeling terrible about yourself because if we have those conversations with ourselves and are ongoing, that has an impact on our feelings of self-worth. It's really just an unproductive form of self-abuse and it's a very long way from thriving and flourishing. So when it comes to motivation, we know what doesn't work. The simple approach, the rewards and punishment don't work, but what does work? How do we create this high quality positive motivation that to see and Ryan talk about and therefore create positive relationships and thriving work environments, and we help ourselves to develop motivation to understand what drives and motivates us so that we can do the things that we want to do, reach the goals that we want to retain, and do it in a way that helps us to grow and thrive. And this is where self-determination theory comes back in. So to see in Ryan's work and the 30 years of work that stemmed from it comes from this philosophically different standpoint. It comes from this assumption that rather than being creatures who need to be coerced and controlled to do the right thing, this old-fashioned notion, that people are instead naturally curious, inclined to learn, keen to develop their knowledge and to take action. And this is all borne out by the research. Here's an example. One of the very early studies that Desai and Ryan undertook they asked two groups of students to solve a puzzle and they paid one group to do it. And what they found is that this group tended to lose interest. When the puzzle was difficult, it kind of wasn't worth the effort they had to put in for the money that they were being paid, those competing demands again. And they gave up. The second group, however, they weren't being paid to solve the puzzle. And what they found is that they persevered. It was the same puzzle, the same level of challenge, but in the absence of payment, without that even being factored into the equation, the second group tapped into something else, some other motivation to persevere and solve the puzzle, even though it required effort and it was challenging. So what's fascinating about this and, and very informative when we think about what drives and motivates us as human beings is that not only did that external motivator, the payment, not work, it actually undermined motivation. It reduced it. Instead, the second group demonstrated that people will undertake a challenge and persevere in the face of difficulty when they can tap into something deeper, something more intrinsic to who they are. So Desai and Ryan started exploring what those other deeper factors are. And over time, they came up with these three psychological needs that drive our behaviour and thus explain 
motivation. So let's go through those three factors. The first of these is competence. So our psychological need for competence is a drive to develop skills and master tasks. And we can see this in babies and toddlers all the time. They're driven to keep reaching for the toy, to move even when it takes all of their physical effort. And if you've ever watched a baby trying to roll over, you know, there's obviously something deep within them that is driving that behaviour because it looks like really hard work. And they're driven to master walking, even though they keep falling over. You know, they might hurt themselves, they get back up, they keep doing it, they persevere. They keep pushing forward and they keep trying to master these skills until they do. So it's like a built-in drive that they have. And it's still there within all of us. But as we get older, we tend to develop beliefs about what we can and can't do or what we should or shouldn't do. And these beliefs can often cloud that inner drive for competence in some areas. And we develop what we call self-limiting beliefs. But it really still is there when you look. Okay, so there'll be an area of your life, a task that you pursue or a project that you complete that you persevere with no matter how much effort it takes just in order to see it through or to master that skill. So maybe you've learnt to play an instrument and taught yourself or been to lessons or you continue to challenge yourself to get better at baking your kids' birthday cakes or you're training for a fun run or a half marathon, or you're like me and you spent your Saturday afternoon pulling the trampoline apart in order to replace the safety net and put it all back together again, despite the fact that it was five degrees raining and getting dark because you're going to get it done, damn it. You know, you're going to master it. You're going to see it through. And that's that drive for competence right there, the drive to master a skill, to be able to see something attained and achieved. So we all still have it within us. It's still very much there. The second psychological need that drives our behaviour is the need for autonomy. So this is a need to act from our own free will or feel like we're acting from our own free will. No one likes to feel that they don't have a say in what they do. And if you think back to our toddlers again, I don't think anybody who's ever tried to help a toddler with a task, like doing up a jacket or putting on shoes, hasn't been told, I do it myself. You know, that kind of determination that you are not to help them and that they are going to do it themselves. And that's them developing autonomy, that belief, that understanding, and there's probably a bit of mastery in there as well, trying to develop the skill, the competence. But, you know, I'm going to do it myself. This is my job today and I'm going to do it my way. And that's, again, one of those inner drives we have that we all have, which is a need for autonomy. So if you think of that phrase, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. I think that describes it perfectly too, that we all need to feel that no matter what else, you know, external factors that might drive us to do something, ultimately it'll be our choice as to whether or not we partake. And we sort of need to feel that what we're doing is worthwhile as well as part of that. So I'm sure we've all experienced the frustration and the very low motivation that comes when we've had to participate in what I might call a box ticking exercise, doing something that feels pointless to us. We're just doing it because somebody told us to. And I think it feels like that, that low motivation to participate in it comes because it doesn't serve this need for autonomy. 
And the third psychological need that rounds out self-determination as an approach to motivation is the need for relatedness. So I know we've spoken on the podcast before about our human need for connection with other people. It's really vital for our well-being and our happiness, but it also plays a part in our motivation. So at a deep level, we really want to feel involved with others. We want to feel connected to other people and trusted and respected by other people. And we want to feel that we're important to them and to convey that they are important to us. Humans are really social creatures. We live and operate in tribes, whether they're families or work teams or social groups or different types of communities. And we're really driven at a deep level to feel included in those groups. And that plays out in our behaviour. So we respond to praise and recognition and mutual celebration of the things that we've done well. And we'll respond perhaps in less positive ways in terms of our behaviour, but also our thoughts and our feelings when we feel that we're not recognised or when we're treated with disrespect, or if we feel that someone doesn't care about us. So those things also very much drive our behaviour and therefore play a part in our motivation. So these are the three essential components, the three psychological needs of motivation according to the self-determination approach. And there's a whole lot more to it than that. Over 30 years, it's developed into a really very comprehensive, quite complex, and in some ways quite philosophical as well as scientific theory, and I'm not even going to pretend that I fully understand all of it, let alone be able to explain it here to you. So let's stick with these three basic elements. And I'm guessing that by now you're probably wondering, how do we use this knowledge and understanding these components of self-determination to help us to motivate ourselves and to motivate others? So what do we do? Well, in reality, we can't motivate other people. I think that's one thing we need to think about here and and to kind of set this up. If motivation or the drive to do something, the desire to do something comes from fulfilling these three psychological needs or some combination of them, you know, it's not a one or the other or the third, and it's not necessarily straightforward, you know, they're interrelated and intermingled. But if we work from that set of first principles that these are the things that are important to human beings that do drive our behaviour, then our motivation really does come from within. It can't be translated or transferred from one person to another. Remember, that's control when we try to do it. So what we're trying to do is not create the motivation in somebody else, but to perhaps create the conditions or support the person or ourselves at times to be able to find these things within us. So we're really creating the conditions that are needed to help us find that inner motivation or perhaps internalise the goal or the desired behaviour that we're looking for as being meaningful and being our own. And I'm going to give you some tips for doing that in a moment. But before I do, I just want to make a point that we actually vary in our levels of self-determination as individuals. Some people are very high in self-determination. They kind of understand this stuff intuitively. They already operate from a place of a drive for competence and autonomy and relatedness. And this is most likely because that's the sort of environment that perhaps they've grown up in. So these things have been supported for them. 
They've been helped to discover their inner motivations to understand themselves and what drives them from early childhood. And that's what's been expected. But others of us have not had that experience and perhaps our life growing up or our experience of work has been about being told what to do and very much responding to external demands and external pressures. So some of this stuff comes more easily to some of us than others, which is again quite normal. We're all very different and unique. We've had different experiences and that has led us to in part become the people that we are. So just bear that in mind as you think about these tips and how easy some of them might be to implement. So first of all, and this is a really important starting point as well, when we're thinking about motivation and we're thinking about those inner drives that will help us to change our behaviour or reach a goal or do whatever it is we're trying to do, then acknowledging that we are all driven and inspired and interested and motivated by different things is really fundamental to this. So as people, we all have very different values and our values drive our goals and our goals drive our behaviour and what we do. So if I really value security and safety, for example, and you're my manager and you want me to do something that I feel is kind of risky, that is really, you know, in conflict with that value that I hold around safety and security, then that makes me uncomfortable. And it initially and immediately sets up a level of internal conflict that might automatically see me resist what you're asking me to do. So values play a part in this. Or as a parent, if I'm asking my child to get ready for swimming lessons, for example, but he doesn't want to go to swimming lessons and he doesn't care if we're late to swimming lessons or if we miss the class altogether, you know, my shouting at him to get ready because otherwise we're going to be late, something that's important to me, is really going to miss the mark in terms of motivating him to get ready. He doesn't care about the lateness. There's no internal drive for him to respond to my requests that we not be late. Another example, you might have a teen and you want her to do her homework, but she has no interest in doing her homework because she's bored by the subject or she doesn't like her teacher or she feels like doing the homework is a complete waste of time. There's low motivation there. So nagging her isn't going to work or not for long because it doesn't match who she is and what's going to drive and motivate her in relation to the homework or the subject. So if we really want someone to internalise the goal or behaviour that we're looking for, to tap into those things around competence and mastery and relatedness, whether that's completing a work task or a homework or getting ready for swimming lessons, it really helps to acknowledge that we're not all motivated or interested in the same things and that sometimes we need to explore and unpack what does interest or excite us or motivate us. And I can imagine now, I'm sure, that you are thinking, well, that all sounds like a lot of hard work. (laughs) I just want my kid to get ready for swimming lessons. I don't have an hour to negotiate with them about it. And, you know, you're right, it is much more work than shouting or nagging. And sometimes you do need to take the faster options. There's no black or white around this. You know, there's shades of grey. You have to pick your battle as a parent, if that's what, or as a manager, perhaps. You have to decide when is it important 
more important just to get things done quickly? And when is it more important to invest some time to set things up for the longer term? Because when we put the hard work in early, And when we do get to know our kids or our team really well as individuals with the unique interests and values and goals, when we get to know ourselves really well and what drives us and our behaviour, noticing what lights us up, noticing what lights our kids up or our staff members up and thinking about what really inspires and motivates them as unique individuals and then we can harness those things in the conversations that we have with them about all of the tasks that they need to do then you have the opportunity to develop this really high quality motivation the kind of motivation that comes from building good relationships and really setting up the conditions to help everyone to thrive and flourish and when people both kids and adults get to know themselves and get to understand their goals and values. And they can see how those things drive their behaviour. They might be able to see how they link to our need for competence or autonomy or relatedness and how these inspire and really intrinsically motivate them. Then they can learn over time to tap into those things themselves. So they do become what we call self-determined or self-driven and therefore self-motivated, which I think ultimately is always the goal, isn't it? So let's look at some tips that directly link to our three psychological needs from self-determination theory and bearing that level of individuality in mind as we do so. So the first of these is about supporting autonomy. So setting up conditions, setting up an environment or situations that help to support people's autonomy in finding their motivation and pursuing a goal. And remember that autonomy is about feeling like we have control over what we do and when and how we do it. So if we're trying to help build motivation in someone to get a task done or engage in a goal, it helps them to let them choose as much as possible what they'll do and how they'll do it. So giving choice is the first tip here. So the goal is always to help the person that they're the cause of their behaviour, that they're doing something because they choose to do it, not because someone's making them. And that's the essence of autonomy. So in workplaces, I often tell leaders, and good leaders know this themselves, to focus on the outcome that they want, not how they want a task done. So the outcome might be big or small, depending on the task and the level of skill of the individual undertaking it, but it's up to the individual to decide how they're going to get to the outcome. And as a manager or a leader or a coach or whatever you might be, this can actually be really hard if you're used to being in control or you're a perfectionist or you're an expert in the task itself. So your inclination will always be to try and see the task done in the way that you do it because you know it and you do it well. But of course, if we get really controlling about how someone does the task, you're taking away all of their autonomy and therefore a big chunk of their motivation to do the task and do it well. So let's go back to our swimming lesson example, shall we? If I'm trying to get my child to get ready for swimming lessons, rather than tell him exactly what to do and how to do it, I can give him a set of parameters. So I can tell him that you need to be ready for swimming lessons in 30 minutes. And the child I'm thinking about, because I have a particular example in mind, is seven. So he knows that in order to be ready for swimming, he needs to have changed into his swimmers and have his bag packed with his goggles and his towel, etc. So I set a parameter 
according to his age and his skill. Yeah, older child, different parameter. Younger child, obviously different set of parameters again. The principle is to set the outcome you're looking for and not tell them exactly what to do and how to do it and when to do it. Don't control, give them choice. So what might I do to get him ready? I might ask him questions. Questions can be really key here. What can I help you do to get ready in time? Might be a question I ask. Or do you need some help to find your swimming bag? Or do you want me to get your swimming stuff out for you? Do you want to get changed in your bedroom or in the bathroom? Or even questions like, how good would it be if we were ready early today? Imagine how happy you'd be and how happy I'd be if we were so organised, if we could do that. So in this situation, I'm setting the parameters, but he's making the decisions. He's in charge. And this works with adults too. You just set different age-appropriate or situation-appropriate parameters. And don't forget to ask questions. So there's huge power in questions because you can help to shape the behaviour. You know, the questions are really a form of parameter without trying to control it. You're not telling somebody what to do. You're just asking them questions that shape the ideas of their mind but leave them with the choice. So that's tip number one. It's around supporting autonomy or creating the conditions that allow people to feel that they have choice in the situation because that's important for motivation. The second tip is about supporting competence. So remember, competence is all about being able to master a skill, to fulfil our inner need to grow and develop and further ourselves. And our goal here as the motivator is to provide the opportunity aligned with our person's needs and interests, you know, what do they want to learn, to then be able to master or conquer a skill. And the tip here is to allow people to test themselves and try new things. Or if you're trying to motivate yourself, allow yourself to try new things and new approaches. And that helps us to kind of learn more about ourselves aside from anything else. So often when we pursue something, we do so with a pretty fixed idea about how to do it. So if I want to get fit, for example, I have to go to the gym and lift weights and really exert myself or I have to run long distances. So our kind of social conditioning, our expectations of what a task looks like or how we might go about pursuing it gets in the way. But of course, there's plenty of ways to get fit. And the way I do it, the way that motivates me and works for me, isn't going to be the way that motivates and works for you, and that's okay. And when you find the way that works for you, the way that really taps into that desire for mastery as a personal experience for you as an individual to conquer or achieve something, that's where you find that intrinsic motivation that keeps you going. Similarly, with other people, if we can give them the scope to try new and different ways of pursuing a goal or a task or the flexibility to try things within the necessary parameters, so this does and can overlap with our need for autonomy. As I said earlier, they're not necessarily discrete things, they overlap. Then we give them the opportunity to be driven by their personal need for mastery. So, as an example, in positive leadership and positive organisational work, there's a concept called job crafting. And job crafting is about giving people the scope within their jobs to shape or mould what they do according to what drives and motivates them with a focus on achieving the best output. 
And you can see some really great examples of this. There's a fantastic video on YouTube of an air steward who turns the safety demonstration into a really entertaining comedy routine. And he's still doing the job that's required. He's conveying the safety information. But he's doing it in a way that presumably really plays to his strengths, which are probably strengths of humour and engaging and entertaining others. And he gets an awful lot more people, I bet, watching that safety demonstration than he would if he just played it straight. So the outcome or the output is the same, but the ability to craft how we do it can really help us to tie in our strengths and our personal motivators and therefore make it a more intrinsically enjoyable and motivating task without having to compromise on the output. And that's really tapping into this need for competence that we have that plays a part in our motivation. So again, in terms of doing this and helping others to do it, taking a questioning approach really works well here. So asking questions either to yourself or to someone else about what would make this task more fun or more interesting or more inspiring for you? Is there a different way of doing it that would be more motivating? Is there a different way that you'd like to try or something that you'd like to test? Or maybe there's some bigger questions like, is there a skill here in our workplace that you'd like to learn that would keep you more engaged in what you do? Do you see somebody else doing something that you'd like to have a go at? a skill that you'd like to learn or to master? And how do you think we might go about arranging that? So getting them involved in a really collaborative conversation is important. And of course, there will be times when you ask these questions and be met with an, I don't know, kind of answer. And these approaches can be really new and they can be really different, particularly for people who are low in self-determination, who've perhaps never been asked these sorts of questions before, or have never thought to or been challenged to think about what inspires and motivates them. So, you know, this is, it's like you're coming from a different planet if you start asking these sorts of questions. So if you come across that, whether it's with your child or another adult or someone that you're leading or managing, it's okay to start small. So start with tight parameters. And sometimes you might need to make suggestions. And this is where observation plays a part. So what have you observed and learned about what lights that person up? What do you think their strengths might be from your observations of them, of what intrinsically motivates them and what does inspire them from what you've observed of them, even if they haven't necessarily noticed those things themselves. And you can offer suggestions based on that. And you offer the suggestion and then you say, is that something you might like to try? Or do you think that would be worth trying? Because you've got to be able to then support their autonomy in making the decision about whether or not that's what they're going to do. So that's supporting competence as an approach to helping people find their inner motivation. And the final tip is a strategy for helping to support our inner drive for relatedness, our third component of self-determination. And this is really about taking your boss hat off. So whether that's you as the boss at home as a parent or you as the boss at work telling people what to do or even you as the boss of yourself, bossing yourself around and telling yourself what you should or shouldn't do and what you're getting right and what you're getting wrong. And I want you to take your boss hat off and replace it with your coach or mentor or guide hat because relatedness is all about cultivating that positive, respectful relationship. It's about helping your person to feel heard, 
and acknowledged in their autonomy, their ability to handle things themselves and have control and choices in what they do and how they do it, and their competence, their skills and their attempts to master new skills, their strengths and what they bring to the world or your family or your workplace. And when we connect and relate to people at that level, we not only help to fulfil that need for relatedness within them, but we motivate them to live up to that relationship as well. So if I feel that you respect me and you believe that I have something to contribute and that I offer something beneficial, then I really want to live up to that. I want to sustain that. That's very motivating. So don't be the boss who needs power and control over others or over yourself. Be the guide or the coach or the mentor who wants to bring out the best in your person. Ask them questions and acknowledge what they bring to the world. Celebrate their successes with them. Help them to discover their motivations and their drive and their values and their interests. And when you do that, you create a relationship or a set of relationships in which you all get to thrive and flourish. So I have one final tip in relation to motivation. And I know this has been pretty complex stuff, but I hope I've helped to make it make sense, or I hope I've made some sort of sense along this little journey. But this one final tip that relates to everything we've discussed today, and that is just be patient and persevere. So this is not a simple quick fix approach to motivation, because as we said right from the outset, people are not simple and things in relation to people are very, rarely quick. People are complicated. And whether you're trying to cultivate motivation in yourself or you're helping someone else to cultivate their motivation, it does take time. And like anything worthwhile, it takes practice, especially if it's completely new to you and maybe to them. But it's absolutely worth it because not only is it the path to achieving your goals, it's also the path to creating a thriving and flourishing environment. And that contributes to everyone's growth and their well-being and their happiness. Thank you for revisiting this episode with me. I hope it's helped to ignite a little motivated fire in you and that you're rearing to get started on your personal projects for 2020. We've popped everything you need to learn more about positive motivation and self-determination in the show notes for this episode. And these include a great book, Drive, by Daniel Pink that covers this stuff and a link to the animated version of his TED talk on the topic that I regularly show to groups in the workshops that I run. Don't forget to sign up to our mailing list. If you'd like a copy of my 2020 personal projects plan, you can do that at potential.com.au forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes. And let me know what you're planning for 2020. Pop a picture up on your social feed and tag it Potential Psychology or share it in the Potential Psychology podcast Facebook group. Shared support from your community goes a long way to helping us all to sustain motivation and achieve our goals. Now, next week in our summer series, we're revisiting Dr. Kate Sprecher's episode on sleep. And in this conversation, I asked Kate about the impact of sleep or lack of it on our health and well-being, how she and her team study sleep in a laboratory, her tips for better sleep, and her recommended resources for learning more about better sleep and how to get it. And I'll also share a little about a great book that I'm reading at the moment on the topic of sleep. 
It's by Dr. Matthew Walker. You may have read it, you may have heard of it. It's certainly come highly recommended to me. So that's next week in our summer series of the Potential Psychology Podcast. Until then, send me pictures of your personal projects planner in action and I might share mine as well. Tell me what you're working towards in 2020 and go forth, thrive, flourish and fulfil your potential. Mm-hmm.